I was just sitting there looking at you. Y'all look so wonderful. Did you know that you're all heroes? You're all heroes. You're all saints. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a saint. That's what the Bible calls you. Oh, by the way, uh, Mike Wells, is it your birthday today? Am I good or what? Happy birthday. Should we all sing to him? No, just kidding. (laughs) Okay, we won't do that. All right. Well, did y'all enjoy your Thanksgiving? Did y'all? Okay, so I was listening. You know me and the pilgrims. I love them. I love them dearly. And uh, they're my heroes, truly. And I was listening to a a teaching about the pilgrims. And uh, it was kind of fun. So can I share just a quick little little fun factoid that maybe you don't all know as I was uh, working and slaving away in the kitchen. Anybody else have to do that over the weekend, slaving away in the kitchen? Okay, so um, the very first Thanksgiving, this is just kind of a fun thing. This is sideline. The, the sermon has not started yet. So as a sideline, you know, that very first Thanksgiving, 104 pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in November, and only, I think, 47 survived to the spring. So a lot of them died. And a lot of the ones that passed away were the women. And apparently, there were only five surviving adult women in that whole group. So they get through all that, and they plant their corn, and their everything, and there's these five women and all these other men and children running around, and uh, so then they decide to have this you know, Thanksgiving feast, right? So they are thinking that it's just going to be them, 47 of them, but uh, lo and behold, through the, through the woods and over the snow and through the dale come 90, uh, Afri- uh, not African-American, Native Americans, I don't want to call them Indians, I don't know what to say up here, Indians come traipsing through the woods, carrying all these deer on their sticks and their their turkeys for a party. There were five women to prepare. They didn't bring women. It was only women, only those five, that had to skin the deer, pluck the turkeys, do everything and cook the beans and everything. There was only five of them to do all that for, what is that, 150 people that just show up in the morning? So did anybody have guests just show up the morning of your Thanksgiving? Okay, whatever. I kind of thought it was an interesting fact. Five women had to do all that. There was only me. I only had 11 over, you know. Anyway. Give me a hand for that. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of awkward. All right. So let's dive into Romans. How does that sound? We'll leave Thanksgiving behind and we're moving, setting, you know, setting our face towards new things, right? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord God, I just ask you right now to come down and fill this place with your spirit, fill this place with your your anointing, with your word, with your truth, Lord God. I just ask you right now that uh, you would use this vessel, use this microphone, Lord, to proclaim your goodness and your truth. God, I pray right now that uh, all humanity would fall to the wayside and that your spirit would live in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you all been reading Romans? I need to renew your desire to read Romans. So uh, I'm hoping that... um, I'm going to get through Romans 8 today, and I told Dwayne last night that um, we can either just call this Romans part 1a, because I was supposed to get all the way through chapter 16 by today, 
or he has to give me more weeks. So he kind of, he, he, he acquiesced and said, I can have at least one more week. So we get, we're going to do Romans through Romans eight today. And then next week we have nine through 16. You laugh, you laugh at me, throw your head back and laugh. Yes, it is quite funny. So we will do our very, very best. And, uh, but in the meantime, I really want to encourage you to read Romans. And on Wednesday nights, we have our Romans Bible study. So we're going to be kind of going in a little bit more depth and all of that kind of thing. So here we go with Romans. So uh, once again, I want to go over kind of the main broad brush um, uh, themes of Romans before we get started on, on our new stuff here today. And, and in case you might be getting bored with my running starts at this, because I go through this all each Sunday, I want to let you know the reason I'm doing this is because it is basic Christianity. This is basic salvation stuff. And I want to make sure that every single one of you have it very deep in your heart, the very basic truths of Christianity, the very basic truths of what we are and what we're doing. And the book of Romans is so amazing with that. Romans is so foundational. It is just one of the most amazingly foundational. Like today, I was sitting back there on the piano. Every once in a while, I would get a little grin on my face because Everything that has been brought forth today pretty much has come out of Romans. And you're going to hear tonight, today, uh, Sal with his groanings. That was Romans. You know, Dwayne bringing forth Romans. Uh, just, uh, it's all Romans. Romans, Romans, Romans. If we don't have a really good grasp on Romans, you're not going to have a really good grasp on your relationship with Christ and what this whole Christianity thing is. So, running start. Always start from the beginning, Right? Anytime I preach, I always start in Genesis, and then I end up wherever we're supposed to be. So Genesis, God, God is love. First John 4, 8, God is love. He is love. He doesn't just love, he is love. He is the very fabric of love. His, his whole being is love. Therefore, anything he does is going to be coming out of love. God is love. Love is nothing if it doesn't have something to love. Love is nothing unless it has an object to love. So therefore God created the heavens and the earth. And he placed the very central figure of his object of love, man, in that garden. He did that because he loved us. He did it because, and I could just see him through that time frame before the fall where God and man walked together in the cool of the night. There was a love relationship. There was an interaction between humanity and man that was beyond anything that we can imagine. Our hearts, God's heart and man's heart were very, very close. And our physical bodies resided in a perfect world. It was an amazing situation. But love is not love if it's not a chosen love. God didn't want this object of his affection to love because it didn't have any other choice. He wanted it to choose love of him. So he gave the the man in the garden and the woman in the garden, he gave them one thing. 
that represented the choice to love God or to not love God. He said, you can eat of anything in the garden. You could do anything you want. You can run and do and go and stretch and see. There's nothing you, that's beyond you except for that. See that tree right over there? Just don't eat that one. That was the one choice that as long as man obeyed that choice, obeyed and, and went along with God, then God knew that they were choosing love for him. Satan took advantage of man's choice. See, God put free will into every man and woman. You have a free will that makes you autonomous. It makes you be able to be what you are and you are what you choose to be. You are not a robot. You are a free will agent. And Satan knows that that is the point at which he can enter in and change things. So Satan didn't tempt them with all the things that were okay and, and good. Satan came in and tempted him that he came in and he started to sow seeds of doubt. Did God really say that you can't eat that one? Did God really say that? Now I said last week that doubt is not a bad thing. Doubt actually is a very good thing because doubt takes lukewarm and it forces it in two different directions. If you doubt something, if you, if you, if you've heard something all your life and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, what that does is it forces you to make some choices. Either you're going to go deeper into the belief of that thing because now you've really worked it out and you've learned about it and you've searched it out. And yeah, you know, I think I do believe that. Or doubt will disengage you from that issue and cause you to disbelieve. So doubt in and of itself is not a bad thing. Doubt is the crossroads that will force you to a deeper level of something. So Satan decides to sow doubt, hoping that man will turn away from God. And he sows doubt and he sows doubt. And finally they go, you know, I don't know. Maybe. And they disengage from belief in God and faith in God. And they reach, they they begin to disbelieve. And they reach out now in disobedience and in rebellion. And they take of that fruit. And they do the one thing that God said not to. They, they made that choice. The one thing, the one thing that God said, this is how you're going to choose to love me. Do this or, but you know, if you don't, then I know that you're not in real, you, you see the choice. And as the minute they did that, they fell. There was a ripping, a shredding, a tearing. Once was, what well, once was very, very close and tight and clean and pure was ripped. What was once perfect perfection now is complete corruption. What once was perfect peace and harmony is now complete fear. What once was complete and beautiful unity with the creator of the universe is now complete rebellion. One choice. The holy and the rightness of God is now contrast with the fallen state of man. Man being unholy and not right. 
very far from God. But in that fall, when they fell, God had written in the hearts of every single man, the conscience, the right and the wrong, the culture of how he lives, the way heaven was at that time when they were with. We all have that now inside of us. We still carry it. You might not know God as a personal God, but you know what? It's written on your heart. You know how God acts. You know that God does not lie. You know it. How do you know that? Because you know it. It's deeply seated inside of you. And when you lie, this guilt and shame, and it, it screams out at you. Do, does anybody ever feel that? When you do something, you cross your conscience. How many, who many, who many, how many feel that? You know for a fact it's not right to cheat. Well, who told you that? My mom and dad. Well, before that, you knew it was wrong. And we cheat, but we cheat. I cheat sometimes. I can't do it right. And when I cheat, condemnation, guilt screams at me. What are you doing? Jesus Christ is God's answer to this mess. God loves us. You are the object of his affection. And number two, overarching theme of Romans is that he desperately wants, yearns, and desires a relationship with you. Because you are his object of affection. If there was no one else standing on this planet, you would be the one he would be seeking after, running after, panting after. You are his object of affection. And it's not good enough to just love from afar. God wants to love very nearly. But we stand in this horrible predicament filled with sin, living in a sinful world. When Adam and Eve disbelieved and disobeyed, corruption and, and uh, evil filled our hearts. We were twisted. And from birth, it's not right. We learned a few weeks ago that there's two parts of us. There's our inside, our heart. And there's our outside, the thing that you see. God seeks your heart first. That's his most valuable possession. Because your heart is an eternal thing. It's going to live for eternity. And he wants it to live very close to him for the rest of eternity. So the very first thing God goes after is your heart. He wants your heart. He wants to be very, very close to you. And he's made it in such a way he will, he will totally take care of this separation first via your heart. And the Bible says, as Dwayne explained to you in Romans 10, that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Your heart, when you say with your mouth and you believe in your heart, if you have faith in what Jesus Christ did, he will take you into him and he will then take you into the heart of God. Heart. For you see, Jesus Christ came into this world and took on human flesh. 
And he lived a life for 33 years, absolutely perfect. He never sinned once. He never lied. He never cheated. He never lighted. Did you catch that? You better be listening pretty good because funny words are coming out this morning. I'll just tell you that right now. He never lied. He never stole. He never cheated. He never did anything wrong. He didn't look at pornography. He didn't seek his own way. He was not stubborn or rebellious in any way, shape, or form. He was completely obedient to the Father. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I don't know about you, but I've sinned. Therefore, I deserve death. He never once sinned. Never once. He did not deserve death. But he went to that cross because he obeyed God, his father. Can you see him in the garden of Gethsemane? He knew what he was facing. He's felt pain physically before. Maybe he hit his thumb when he was hammering in the, in the carpenter shop. He knows what pain is. And he, like every other human being, would rather not experience physical pain. And he's in the garden and he's crying out to father and he's saying, God, if there's any other way you can save these people, take this cup from me. I don't want it, my physical being, I don't want it. If there's any other way that you can join this race of humanity to your heart, then let's do it that way. But please. And he heard nothing from the father. So eventually said, but not my will, but thine. Jesus was completely submitted to obedience, obedience. He was so obedient to the father. Against what he would rather, he did it. And he bore every single sin ever committed. He bore every sickness and disease in his body on that cross. He died But because he was perfect, because he had never sinned, because he had overcome all of that, he had no sentence to death. He went to death willingly, obediently, no rebellion within him. Death couldn't hold him. Death had no hold on him. It had no legal hold on him. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He burst out of that tomb, bringing captives with him, overcoming every sickness and disease, every sin, and every shred of death. And he looks at you today, and he says that if you will just believe in the work that he did, if you will just believe in everything I just told you, if you will just believe these things, if you will have faith, If you will have faith in your heart, in your heart, it's not a list of do, 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 do. It's in your heart. If you will just in your heart right now, just go, I believe it. The easiest thing on the planet. I believe it. Then Jesus Christ will take you and put you inside of him and he will carry you to the father and your heart and the father's heart will be joined again. And there will be nothing separating you any longer. There is no sin. There is no death. There is nothing that can separate you from the heart of the father. If you will believe, you can't do anything to get yourself into the heart of father. The Bible is very clear. Romans is so clear. You can't wait a, wait a minute. You know, when I give up smoking and when I'm ready to stop cussing, then I'll work on this Jesus thing. Cause I have to do those things to be able to get, cause he's holy and, and that 
And God's like, no, sorry. There's nothing you can do because if there's something you can do, then you can go, look how cool I am. Yes, me and Jesus are one. But God takes all that away and he just says, believe, believe, believe. Just, just join your heart. Just, just. So our hearts now, those of you in this room who have accepted Christ as your personal savior, your heart now is in the very throne room of God. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are an overcomer. But funny thing is, I'm still in my body. And, you know, we've said it here and got a good chuckle out of it many times. How come I didn't just die then? And then I could be with the Father in every aspect, just like it was prior to the fall. But God says no. He says, nope, nope, nope. That's not how we're going to roll. You're going to believe in me. I'm going to take your heart up into heaven and, and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And, and you are going to be made holy and righteous in every single way in your heart. And I'm going to leave your body here on earth. Because I am not finished with this earth. I am not finished with this earth. I am not finished with this earth. I'm not finished with the race of humanity that remains on this earth. What I want is I want your heart so knit close to me. And your little self still walking on this earth. And I want your heart to transform everything about your life now. So that now you will look a whole bunch like a bunch of Jesus is walking around on this earth. And if God can get a whole bunch of you to transform how you walk around this earth, he will transform the entire race and redeem the earth. So some of you might say, you know, that's, it's kind of not fair. That's kind of mean. Because you know what? If you really loved me, God, why do I have to stay in this very sinful, broken, evil world? Because there's horrible, awful things in this world. Some guys walked into a mosque in Egypt and just shot 300 people. Some fella down in Texas wandered into a church and shot how many? 30 people dead? Families? That's not nice. Diagnosis of cancer, diagnosis of this, diagnosis of my knee hurts now. You know, it didn't used to hurt. My eyes aren't working so good as they used to. Life on this earth is pretty not nice. I get hungry sometimes. I I get mad at you. I'm in this world. I'm in this world. Why am I in this world? God, I yearn for you. I yearn to come and join my heart up there. But you still got me in this world. And in this world, there's temptations. And in this world, there's addictions. And in this world, there's hard things. And in this world, I... I, And if you were a loving God, why would you leave me in this world? Why? Why, God? If you're a loving God, why? Socrates, Xenophon, Ovid, 
all these philosophers of, of the ancient Greek times felt this same pull. In their writings, they talk about how inside of them, it's just a struggle. Why? Your heart is at peace. If you've put yourself in Christ, your heart is at peace in the very throne room of God. And your body is in a war zone. Your physical life is now a war zone because Satan hates you with as much hatred as the Lord loves you. He hates you. He hates all of humanity because we're made in his image and he hates God. And you, every time he sees you, he's reminded of the heavenly father because you are amazing and he hates you. And he's going to do everything he possibly can to get you. He's doing everything he possibly can to dislodge your heart from the heart of God. And to pull you, all of you, back down into this cursed world. Wish I could say it was an easy life once you accept Christ. It's almost not easy. Sorry. But you know, Paul knows about this. God knows about it. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words. He knows, he knows, he knows how hard it is. And he gets real with you. Open your Bibles right now to Romans 7. I want you to start in Romans 7. I'm going to get to 8. I got a lot of time. How much time do I got? Whew. God knows the struggle you're in. He knows exactly the struggle you're in. And he's looking at you and he says, I love you with an everlasting love. And I've got you right where I want you. And my love for you is so great that I'm not going to leave you right where you're at. Because, but you are going to overcome right where you're at. And you and I are going to do this thing. Everybody say, you and I are going to do this thing. Chapter 7, I'm starting here with verse 15. And, and Zach, back on projection, get ready because there's a lot. God knows where you're at. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who is doing it, but the sin living inside of me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, but I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Anybody relate? Anybody relate? Don't tell me that God is some far away, something, something that doesn't get it. He gets it. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, you know, it's kind of a tongue twister too. If I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living inside of me that does it. So I find this law at work that when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. That would be your heart. It delights in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. 
So God sees it. Our hearts are so knit to him. His ways are written on our hearts. We so want anybody in this room want to do what's right. Who in here wants to do what's right? Raise your hands up. We all want to do what's right. But how many of you have inside of you an inner rebellion that gets you? I see some hands out there. How many of you have an inner rebellion inside of you that goes, no. Inside, you want to do what's, or outside, inside, no, right here. You want to do what's right, but the outside goes, "Mm, forget it. I want to get up in the morning and pray every morning at 3 a.m. Because then I could get in hours of prayer and supplication with my heavenly father. But my body says, I want to give all that I have to the poor and sacrifice myself on the altar or the stake of martyrdom. But my body says, Rebellion, disobedience. God says, and you can fill in the line, and just about everything God says to you, what does your body say? You are an object of rebellion and disobedience. So we find man in a crisis of conscience. We find people, you and I, we know people, we are people who walk around with this incredible deep desire inside of us to do what's right. But yet we never can quite fully fill it out, make it work. So we always have this crisis of conscience. Anybody ever had a crisis of conscience? And it feels yucky. What does it feel like? Yucky? Tell me some words that a crisis of conscience feels like. Guilt? Fear? Sad? Heaviness? Anxiety, worthless, condemnation. Would you say condemnation? Like the, the, yeah, like condemnation. Like the judge is sitting up with the gavel and you're brought in and he looks at you and he slams the gavel down and he says, guilty. There's truth in it. I am guilty. There's truth in it. I am guilty. And God hates sin. He hates wrath. He has a wrath against sin. Wrath will come against sin from God. He hates sin. Why does he hate sin so much? Why is he so wrathful against sin? Because sin harms the very objects of his great affection. And he wants to destroy it. He's so angry at sin. He hates sin. It is something he cannot stand. And as long as we are involved with sin, we are going to be involved with his wrath coming at us. But if we will separate ourselves and hide ourselves in Christ and be forgiven in Christ, then when God's wrath comes, it will miss us. And that's where you are in Christ. So the end of Romans 7 leaves us with a great troublesome spot. In a great troublesome spot. We are in a crisis of conscience. We are in a crisis in our life and in our world. Our desires are for so much better than what we do. 
And God has you right where you, he wants you. He's got you right in the exact same right place because he loves you so much. And once again, you as that object of affection might look at him and go, I don't know that I really like your love so much right now. Because if this is what you do to people who love you, then what is the deal? That's my phone going off. Is that my children calling me? I don't know. They should be sitting in church. (laughs) Sorry. So the chapter 8 of Romans takes us from this crisis point of humanity where we all find ourselves. And it's going to lead us through some very interesting steps. And it's going to teach us what we need to do with ourselves while we're in this little tiny, it's a little tiny span of time. Your life on this earth is only this long. Eternity, it's this long right here. You only get one shot at this. It's your time on the stage right now. And it's your, the spotlight is on you. And what, the, you know, the cameras are rolling. And how you live this little tiny span of time, this little tiny um, just section of moments is, is very, very important. And so chapter 8 is going to tell us what to do with our bad selves during this little section of time so that we can turn this crisis of conscience around. Are you ready for that? Okay, there's six things. Let's start off with Romans 8 verse 1. So, well, actually, let's finish chapter 7. It says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Question mark. You know, question mark, exclamation point. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is a way out of the mess that we find ourselves in. And then he continues, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So he sets it up right there. This troublesome spot we find ourselves. Now let's open up chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He just starts right out. So if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have taken your heart and you have said, yes, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, and the things that you have done, you are now taken and swooped up from your life and you are now put into Jesus Christ. You are not the same person that you used to be. And he tells you right here, no matter what, there is now no condemnation for you. None. 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 None from the past, none from the present, and none for the future. There is now no condemnation for you. The judge that stands, that you stand before, even in your brokenness, that judge cannot wage a a war against you any longer because you are not you anymore. You are in Christ, and Christ was perfect. Satan loves it when he's got you in condemnation. And condemnation is the biggest lie for every single one of you who are in Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ Jesus, then have at your condemnation. Just enjoy it. Just have a ball. Because you truly are guilty. You truly are a sinner. 
You truly are headed. You are condemned. But if you, my friends, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior and you have confessed with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you are in Christ Jesus. There is not one shred of condemnation that can come against you because is there any condemnation against Christ? No. So when I'm living this world and I am in this fight and I am in this war and I am doing my very best, but sometimes I slip because I'm still in this world. God says, I still don't have condemnation for you. Are you still in Christ Jesus? Yeah, I'm in Christ Jesus. I made a boo-boo. You're right. You made a boo-boo. Come on, girlfriend. Come on over here. Nestle in close to me right now. Just nestle in. Hear my heartbeat. I love you. I love you. I love you. Daddy, I love you too. I'm so sorry. I just, I didn't mean to. I, I really want to. And this, this relationship keeps, keeps drawing me to his heart. Drawing. Conviction is the only thing a, a believer will ever feel. You are never to feel condemnation. Conviction says, hey, listen, girlfriend, that's probably not the best. My best for you is over here. But so many believers will succumb to condemnation, the feeling of guilt, and I'm not good enough, and I'll never be good enough, and I've ruined, I've ruined it, I've ruined it. God is not good enough. I'm ruined, I'm ruined, I'm ruined. Condemnation is the enemy. If you are in Christ Jesus, There is now no condemnation. The very first step for you to beat up and overcome your crisis of conscience is put yourself in Christ. Run to him. Just apologize. Repent. Quick. Quick. Get out of whatever dummy thing you did. Anybody ever do a dummy thing? Quick. Get yourself back over in Jesus. Quick. Get away from it as far as far as you can be and nestle into his heart. So many times... Humanity, when they slip and fall, they run from God's heart. Oh, he'll never love me. He doesn't like me. He's, he's, I've broken. They'll run from his heart and they'll hide in shame and guilt and condemnation. But God says, there's no condemnation upon you. That's not how I look at you. He's crying out for you to come and nestle into his heart. For there is therefore now. So number one, you have to live outside of condemnation. You cannot let condemnation into your heart. You cannot. If you want to, go right on ahead. But it's not where God has you. So verse one, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by my own sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful men in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Can you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you have faith in that? then I never, ever, ever, ever want you to feel condemned ever again. I never, ever, ever want you to run from God the next time you do something stupid dummy head. I want you to run yourself right over to the heart of Jesus and nestle right in because that's where you belong. Point number two, pathway out of this crisis of conscience. Starts with verse five. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on. Everybody underline in your Bible. If you have a Bible, underline it. If you have a whatever, highlight it, okay? Minds set on. 
For those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that, uh, what that nature does. But those who live according, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on, underline that, what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful men is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So this whole section here talks very strongly about your mind, what you got your mindset on. Mindset. Everybody say mindset. So what you have your mind set on is very, very important to God. And there's two paths he, he lays out here. There's the mindset on the things of the spirit, and there's the mindset on the things of the flesh. You have two paths in front of you. You have two paths. Your heart is seated in heavenly places with the spirit. Your body is seated inside of a very sinful, evil, broken, awful world. You are standing here like this going, what am I? What am I? Am I a murderer, hater, or am I a God, you know, you know what I'm talking about? God up here. And the Bible says here that here's a big deal between your crisis for your crisis of conscience. Where's your mindset? What are your, is your mind set on? Are your, is your mind set on things above or is your mind set here? But God, I'm living here. I have to deal with this. Yes, yes. He says, yes, you're right. You are there. But he says, you aren't really there. You really live in heavenly places. So where's your mind? Which one am I? You steal my parking spot at Walmart. I'm sitting there. I got my blinker on. I'm sitting there. That one's mine. I've been sitting here for a long time. And the way it works is the person backs out and goes the other way, kind of, or comes my way, kind of blocks me from getting in. Somebody swooped in there and took my parking spot. Didn't even sit there waiting. I had my blinker on. So what's my mindset on right now? And I take one look at him as I drive by. I got your number. I see you, old lady in the purple hat. So we're shopping. You don't know me, but I know you, girlfriend. My mind, where's my mind set on? Oh, if I would have just said, well, you want the parking spot? Go right on ahead. You need it more than I do. Bless you. Oh, you want this loaf of bread? Here, take it. It's the last one. It's the one I want, but you know what? Here, go ahead. Hoobly. What is a mindset? A mindset is a fixed mental attitude that predetermines a person's response to certain situations. You all have a mindset. I have a mindset. What is your mindset on? I have a mindset. I live my life by my mindset. My mindset sometimes is fickle. So God says, okay, so quit just letting your mind set on anything at once. You set your mind. Your set, your mind needs to be set on the things above. It will help your crisis of conscience. I got to hurry up. Oh, no. 15 minutes like that. Oh, Lord of mercy. 
I think I'm going to need a bunch more. Okay, so verse 9. You ha- that was really fun, though, wasn't it? It was good. Verse 9. You, who have, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But in Christ, but if Christ is in you, your body is what? What? Dead? What's dead? What does dead things do? Nothing. But if Christ, there's only one that does, Jesus. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living inside you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Point number three, die to sin. You are dead. Okay, so possums, they're walking along. And if something comes up to a possum that is dangerous, what does a possum do? Its tongue hangs out. I saw a picture of it. Its tongue hangs out. Its eyes roll back. It does not move. It is completely flaccid. You walk past a playboy, I want you to go dead. Something pops up on your screen, I want you to go dead. You have a chance to seal something, I want you to go dead. I want you to think about that possum unable to respond. You can go over there and you can poke it. You can, pl- you can pull its teeth out. You can do anything it wants. It will not respond. And I want that to be you. This is what your life in Christ does. It does not, it is so dead to sin that it does not even respond to any temptations that come your way. You get some, in some kind of situation that's really not fair. You're dead to a reaction. You're dead to anger. You can't do it because you're dead. This is how you avert a crisis of conscience. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. But if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if the spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the spirit are sons of God. Wait a wait a minute. Now, no longer. He doesn't talk about being a slave to God. He says we're sons. And we cry out to him, uh, but you have received the spirit of sonship. And we cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may be able to share in his glory. Point number four, you are no longer a slave to anything. You are now a son of God. You and Jesus are co-heirs together. You will have an inheritance with the saints and in the saints and in God. You are no longer a slave. You are a son. Sons are close at heart. This is Romans 8. Pathway away from your crisis of conscience. Skip down to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If we do not know what to pray, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans of words that cannot be expressed. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit intercedes. Pray, number five. Was I five? Pray. Number one, no condemnation. Number two, your mind set. What is it set on? Number three, you are dead to sin. You die. Every time sin walks by, you fall over. Flop. You know how they do on football? Flop. I dare you. No, I'm serious. Any temptation walks by, flop. You're dead. You can't. You can't pick up that whatever it is. Number four, you're a son, so you're close at heart. Number five, you pray. 
And finally, let's have the band come up. I'll be done in just a minute if you don't mind because I got to get you to the end of chapter 8. Verse 28 of chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, you living in this sinful world, he's got your heart nestled up close to him up in heaven in high places. He's got your body down here. It's getting knocked around, banged around, bugged around. All sorts of evil things are happening because you live in an evil world, not because God is evil, but he's got you right in the right place because in the midst of every single difficult, hard, whatever moment is his time to shine through you. And now we know that in all things, God is going to work for the good of those. Every hard thing you're facing right now, God's going to work for the good in you. He's going to work for the good. Do you believe those words? Then why are you fussing and whining and pouting? Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the likeness of his son. You're supposed to be just like Jesus. You're supposed to be his trophy here on earth, just like Jesus was that he might be the firstborn among many believers and those he predestined, he also called and those he called, he justified and those he justified, he's glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for you, who can be against you in Jesus name? You living in this broken, evil, sinful world. If God is for you, who is against you? Tell me, come on, tell me. You think the whole world's out against you, huh? But if God's for you, kind of spit there. Did you see the spit? (laughs) He did not spare his own son. He gave us him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring a charge against you? You're in Christ for it is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, he was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He is standing there. He is interceding for you. He's calling your name. He's saying, you're going to win. 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 You can do this. Rise up. Don't give up. The pain and suffering is there, I know, but don't give in to it. I'm going to win. Verse 35, who, who shall separate you from the love of God? It brings us back to my very first supposition. God loves you so much. What can separate you from that love? Only you can separate you from that love. You. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship Do you look at the trouble and the hardship you're going through and are you going, what, God? You don't love me. Where are you? You're so far from me. No, 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 no. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for we face, for your sake, we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who what? Through him who what? He's got you right where he wants you because he is going to intercede through you and raise you up in the middle of most the worst sinful, evil situation that you find yourself in. And you are not going to bow to condemnation and you're not going to do anything. You're not going to get your mind set on this junk down here. You're going to set your mind up here and you will now be 
more than conquerors. No, in all these things, all of them, all of your troubles, all of your situations, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor the powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Stand up right now, everybody, across this room. Hallelujah. Chapter 7 ends with such a terrible situation for humanity. Struggling between where we are and where we are. And how that fight just, oh, how am I going to win? How am I going to win? And chapter 8 ends very, very differently because he wants you to live all the way through chapter 8. He wants you to live all the way through chapter 8 so that you, his kids, his object of affection will live through his, their life right here on this earth, chapter 8, and end with chapter 8. How many are with me on that? How many are with you? I want prayer warriors up here because there's some of you that need to die to some sin tonight, today, whatever time it is. It's dark. I don't know. Some of you need to die to some sin Some of you need to shed some condemnation. Where's my prayer warriors? Quick. Some of you need to get your mind set somewhere else. Some of you need to get a little bit more victory in your step because you have been walking just a hair down underneath everything instead of on top. If that's you, I want you to come up right now. Right now. Let's get some things taken care of right now, quickly. Some of you need to lay some sin aside. Some of you need to lay aside some condemnation. Some of you need to change some mindsets inside. Some of you need to pray. Some of you need to get out from underneath the heaviness of this world. In Jesus' name. Thank you. Let's worship. If you got to go, you got to go. But if you can, come forward right now and get some prayer.